All right, so we are in Romans, and uh, today we're going to look at uh, a handful of verses, I think. In uh, Romans chapter 12, if you have a Bible, turn there. Uh, we're going to look specifically at uh, verses 9 uh, through 13. And um, before we get there, I wanted to ask a question, and the question is simply, if someone were to come up to you uh, and just ask you, what kind of life are you living? What would your answer be? Someone just comes up to you. It doesn't really matter if you know them or don't know them. They just came up to you and said, hey, what, how would you describe your life? What kind of life are you living? Uh, I think obviously our answers would vary. just depends on what day someone happened to ask us that question. And I think we sometimes would you know, define how our life, you know, what our life is about or what kind of life we are living literally based on the day that we happen to be living in. And so I find typically if you are, it's a busy day. So if someone asks you that question on a busy day, well, we tend to be pretty cranky, pretty moody, pretty exhausted. If someone asked you what kind of life you're living uh, on a day where it just had some uncertainty, you just didn't know what was going to become of that day, there were some big decisions getting made, well, we tend to be a little bit anxious, pretty worried, pretty fearful. If someone were to ask you what is your life like or what kind of life are you living on a day where it's, you're just frustrated? Well, I'm going to be annoyed. I'm going to be angry. Uh, I'm going to be maybe tend to be short. If someone were to ask you what your life is about on a day where you're feeling just kind of blah, anyone ever feel like you just have a blah day? Uh, well, my answer to that question is going to be, well, eh, <laughs> not much of an answer just kind of complacent or, or lazy, or if someone just happened to ask you, what kind of life are you living in, and it happened to be a good day, well, you might give them a, a happy, enthusiastic, or a, a pleasant answer. Now, why I'm starting here is because I think what happens is what kind of life we're living is actually driven by the day that we're living in. And the reality is every day is different, and it would be a tragic way to live life where every my life is just different every day, and it's dependent on the situation or the circumstances. I wanted to ask this question in follow-up. Well, if I'm defining what kind of life I'm living by the day that I just happen to be living in, well, does how I live my life actually matter to God? Like, how would God want me to answer the question of how, what kind of life I'm living? And I think most people would say, well, yeah, obviously God cares about how we're living our lives, but I think when, what we mean when we say, or how we answer this question of that God does care, I think what we're essentially saying without saying it is, as long as I'm not sinning, God's cool. As long as I'm not, you know, just blatantly just doing evil or wicked or just sinful things, then God is, is content. And uh, obviously God does not want us uh, living day to day, just jumping from one sin to the next. But I, I, I firmly believe that God is a lot more concerned about living a life of just sin management. I think God has something more for us than just managing sin. Bless you. I firmly believe that how we live matters to God because how we live is a reflection of what we believe about God and a reflection of God's love or God's mercy in our lives. So if you believe, and what we've been studying in Romans for the last nine months has all been about God's demonstration of his great love and his great mercy to us as shown in the sending of his son, Jesus. So how are we to live in light of God's great mercies, 
God's great love. Last week, if you were here, uh, if you weren't, I'd encourage you to listen to the message. It was a great message by Jeremy Alexander. And uh, he started us off by saying, well, how God wants us to live, well, we have to, first of all, learn how to think rightly about ourselves. Uh, and the, the language that Paul uses in uh, Romans chapter 12 uh, is have, be sober-minded. I mean, don't be drunk on yourself. When you think about you, don't be drunk. Don't have an elevated view, which leads to pride, and don't have a low view, which just leads to despair. Actually have a very humble view when you consider yourself. So how we think about ourselves will ultimately dictate how we live. So don't be drunk on yourself. And then the second thing Jeremy did a great job of walking us through is God has graciously and just generously given us each gifts. Each of us have been uniquely gifted by God, and we are, in light of God's grace and mercy and love, to live giving our gifts back to advancing the kingdom of God, to serving God's church so that God's body, God's church, meaning the body, would be healthy, would be vibrant, uh, would be effective, and would be its mission to the world would be unhindered because the people of God are using the gifts that God has graciously given them to the fullest extent. Now, God's not just concerned with how we think about ourselves and how we use the gifts that God has given us. I think the thing that we're going to hit hard on today is it really matters to God how we relate to one another. So, how we relate to one another will either reflect to God and to other people that we really understand God's love and God's mercy, or how we live in relationship to one another will communicate, we understand it in our heads, but it hasn't actually impacted our hearts. Now, I realize that one of the hard things about relationships is that they involve people. You have to, if you're going to have a relationship, you can't just have a relationship with yourself. Having a relationship involves people, and anytime you involve people in anything, it gets really complicated, and the potential to get hurt or frustrated or disappointed is increased. Now, you don't have to probably think too hard of this person or these people, but um, you know, if we were to be honest, I'm sure that you've had someone or many people in your life who have literally just exhausted you, who have taken advantage of you, who have disappointed you, who have talked poorly about you to other people, who it seems their mission in life is to frustrate you or annoy you or hold you back from doing what you might want to do otherwise. So I'm sure we all have stories of these types of people in our life. I'm not saying everyone is like that. But because people are sinful, and that includes you, relationships with people are going to be challenging, or at least they won't be easy. Now, what I love what Paul does for us in these literally short few verses is he teaches us what it looks like to have a right relationship with those people around you. Now, I started by asking the question, what kind of life are you living I hope as we walk through not only today, we looked at last week, we'll look at today, and in the coming weeks, our answer is going to be shaped, well, I know how I think about myself, I know how I'm using what God has given me, and then today specifically, I know how I'm answering the question, what kind of life I'm living, I'm living in right relationship with people. Well, why? Well, because of God's great love and mercy. How could I not have 
loving and mercy mark all of my relationships because that's what's marked my relationship with God. Here you go. Here's a Romans 12, starting in verse 9, and it says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. And then verse 13, share with God's people who are in need, practice hospitality. There's a lot of things in there, right? Now, it would be very easy as you read these just short few verses, like, wow, there's like 12, maybe 13 different commands that Paul gives, and they seem, at first glance, very not connected at all. But one of the fun things for me as I've been sitting with these few verses this week is seeing, wow, how these verses actually are all very much connected together, and it's all under the banner of what does sincere love actually look like? Now, one of the the first command here is love must be sincere. You notice what's missing there? It doesn't say that you're to love. It says your love must be sincere. So there's no actual command that we are to love. I find that odd that Paul would just assume that we know that we are to love, and now he's describing the type of love that we're supposed to have. Well, He doesn't need to command us to love. He does that certainly in other places. But specifically here, Paul knows that the people that he's been talking to, he's presented the love of God and how our response should be to love people. Like love is just so woven into the fabric of Christianity. If someone asked, well, what is Christianity all about? It's about love. It's about God's love demonstrated to us and how I demonstrate And reflect back to the world God's love for me by loving. But Paul, what he's saying here is the type of love that we should have. We're commanded to love, but here he's focusing on a very specific kind of love. Now, before I I look at the different behaviors or characteristics, as it were, of what does practically speaking sincere love look like? How do you live sincere love out? I wanted to define, actually, what sincere love is is. Now, the actual word, uh, when you go back to the original language, uh, is the same word for sincere is the actual word that we use for hypocrite. So one way to actually understand or translate this verse, and actually some versions translate it like this, is to love unhypocritically. Or a New American Standard says, let love be without hypocrisy. So sincere love means you're not going to be a hypocrite in your love, or your love will be unhypocritical love. Now, in the uh, first century, uh, the Greeks had a term for hypocrites, and the term was they were play actors, meaning it's a hypocrite is someone who plays a part. A hypocrite is someone who does not lie with their speech. It's someone who lies with their behavior. They say one thing, and it very well might be the truthful thing to say, but when you examine just how they live, it doesn't, it's not consistent with what they've said. And again, what they said could have been true. So to be a hypocrite is to be a play actor, someone who speaks of love, but they just don't demonstrate love. So as you're hearing this definition of love, I already want you to start wondering, 
huh, is my love sincere? Am I a hypocrite in the way that I love? Now, no one wants to be labeled or identified as a hypocrite, but is your love hypocritical or is your love sincere or authentic or genuine or unhypocritical? Now, if you're going to have sincere, authentic, unhypocritical love, well, here's a few things that I think would be helpful. Well, you love with no ulterior motives, meaning we don't love people in hopes that they will in turn do something for us. You know what that's called? That's just manipulation. I'm loving them in hopes that they will do something or give something or I'll get something in return from them. Well, the beautiful thing about Christian love is I don't need to love in order to get something. I'm able to love because I've already received something. So whether the person loves me back, it doesn't really matter. What matters is I have so much love that I've received from God that I'm just a conduit now of being able to love people without ulterior motives. If you're going to love sincerely or authentically, well, you love regardless of performance, meaning love doesn't cease to be given if the person we're seeking to love is doing unlovely things. Like, that's the easy thing, right? If someone's just doing something unlovely and whatever that might be, our typical response is, well, I'm withholding my love from them. You see this in marriage a lot. A wife doesn't like how her, sp- her husband is performing or husband doesn't like what her, her wife is doing, and so they withhold one love from one another. You see it in engagements, in dating relationships, in friendships. You see it everywhere. Well, if the beautiful thing about Christian love is we love not in response to someone's performance. We love because we have love to give. It doesn't matter what they're doing is, is good or bad or indifferent. It's I've got love to give, and I give it to you not based on performance because that's not how God gave me his love. If you're going to love sincerely or authentically, unhypocritically, then we still love even if love is rejected. So if someone that you're trying to love and you're doing anything and everything you can to love them and they reject you for whatever reason, that doesn't mean you cease to love them. It's not like, well, hey, three strikes, you're out. I'm done loving you. Well, the beautiful thing about Christian love is that uh, we love regardless of a rejected, whether someone rejects the love that I have for them. And we know how to do that because God was relentless in loving me even when I rejected him. One last one is if we're going to have sincere or authentic, unhypocritical love is that we love without discrimination. And I think this one is, is pretty hard for a lot of people because to love without discrimination means you, you could never look another person in the face and say, well, I can't love you because of your background or because of our history or there is, there is no place that we would have discriminatory love towards someone else because that's not how God has loved the world. God has loved without discrimination. God, you might be familiar with John 3.16, for, for God so loves the world. And his love he gave, he demonstrated that love in, in Jesus. So we love without ulterior motives. We love regardless of performance. We love even if love is rejected. And we love without discrimination. Now you might be thinking, that's pretty difficult. <laughs> that's pretty hard to do. And you would be absolutely right in saying that. It is absolutely 
difficult to love in this way. And you might be tempted to say, well, I need to just buckle down and I just need to pray, dear Jesus, help me to love people sincerely. And I don't think that's a wrong prayer to pray. It's nothing sinful about that prayer. But what I would challenge us, challenge you, to maybe actually pray something different. Jesus, will you help me to receive fully the love that you have for me? Amen. And I say it can be that simple of a prayer because I firmly believe that when someone has received in full, not just in part, but has received in full God's love for you, sincere love will begin to flow from us. So it's not this battle of, God, help me to love this person, help me to love this person, help me to love this person. It's, God, help me to receive your love. Help me to receive your love. Help me to receive your love so that I can be a conduit to loving this person, not with my cheap, selfish, unsincere, hypocritical love, but to love them with your sincere love. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 uh, says this, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. I love the very first part of this verse. How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. I don't know when we think about the love that God has for us, we think about it maybe theoretically or just theologically or but the language that scripture uses is God's love for us is lavish. It's extravagant. So if I want to grow in sincerely, authentically, unhypocritically loving people, I need to receive that kind of love that God has to give to me. Now, we've looked just briefly at what sincere love is, and I want to finish today by just briefly looking at, well, how does sincere love manifest itself in just daily living? What does it look like? So we go on to verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. And Paul says two things, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So one aspect of how sincere love plays out in daily life is sincere love hates evil. Now, I realize that it might seem off that a manifestation of sincere love would be hate, but I think we often forget that true love will, or at least should, produce a hatred for whatever stands against it. A lot of people would say, well, it's just not loving to hate. I can dislike something, or I can have a a displeasure towards something, but to hate, that's not loving at all. Let me ask you this question of, what do you hate? Not who, and if you answer the, that question with a who, you've got another problem. I'm asking the question of, what do you hate? Not who, but what? How about, do you, do you hate arrogance and pride? How about, do you hate injustice namely for the unborn, namely for the marginalized, the less fortunate? Do you hate things like perverse speech or lies or gossip? Do you have a hatred for when a a false gospel is preached, meaning that people preach or proclaim a message that you can work your way to God and have a works-based relationship with God? How about do you hate sexual immorality, namely pornography, Namely, how women are are trafficked, and do you hate those things? 
Now, all of these things that I've just mentioned all have a verse that goes with each of them, that if we are sincerely people who love sincerely, we will know exactly what to loathe. And this is a very strong word that scripture uses is to hate or to loathe. I'll give you just one verse, Proverbs 8, 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then the, the author goes on and says, I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Sincere love calls us to absolutely loathe that what is evil because evil is an absolute assault on the character of God. Some of you might be familiar, if you're familiar with the Old Testament stories of uh, King David, uh, he had uh, picked a fight with a man named Goliath, and uh, you can read this story in 1 Samuel 17. And what I love about this story is this was just a shepherd boy, fresh off of just taking care of sheep, he comes in and sees thousands of Israelites lined up for battle against uh, the Philistines. And David, this young kid, comes in and is like, what, what's going on? And, well, no one wants to fight their champion. No one wants to fight this Goliath. Look at him. He's like two of Shaquille O'Neal. He's huge. And David's like looking around like no one wants to take him on. And then Goliath comes out and he starts just saying these awful things about God and the people of God. And David's response, as soon as he heard the name of God being profaned, as he heard the people of God being profaned, you know what David's response was? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would dare say anything about my God or the people of God? Give me a stone, I will take him down myself. Like I love David's response was, is there no one who's going to stand and hate what this man is doing? He's profaning the name of God. Like this is what a sincere love would produce in us is absolutely hating anything that opposes or stands in the way of God's name, God's fame, God's glory, or the people of God. Now, practically speaking, you might not face any, uh, anyone named a Goliath, um, but I wonder, at just a very simple example, say you're standing around church one day, and there's just a group, and you know how kind of group conversation goes. Sometimes it's just goofy, silly banter going back and forth, and you're kind of sitting there, man, I wish someone would change the conversation and actually talk about something meaningful, beneficial, helpful. But then someone just takes the conversation towards saying something pretty, pretty wrong, pretty rude about someone else. And your first response is, man... I wonder what I should do. What would the loving thing to be to do? And so we think the loving thing to do when we're confronted with someone who is gossiping or just malicious talk about someone or you know, slandering their name, whatever it might be, is, well, it would not be loving for me to say something to that person. So rather, I, just, I won't participate in this conversation. I'll just kind of stand here with my arms crossed and I, I won't look and I'll just act like I'm not listening. Or we might have a little bit more courage and we'll just be like, oh, peace out. I, I got to go to Chipotle. I can't stand and listen to this anymore. And we think the loving thing to do is to either say nothing or not participate. But do you know what the loving thing to do in that situation would be? And it doesn't matter whether it's happening here at church, whether it's happening in your office, would be to confront the one who is gossiping and say, that what you're saying is not right. I know that person. I love them dearly. 
take a stand against, confront evil, not in a way where you're condemning them or even judging them. What you're doing is inspiring them towards righteousness. Take what is evil, speak out against it, but speak of it in such a way where your sincere love for what is right, for what is good, inspires them to say, oh, you know, you're right. I I shouldn't have said that. I don't know the person like that. Sincere love would manifest itself in that we would hate evil. I think one of the ways that we can, a simple question is, well, how how do I know what to hate? How do I grow in hating that which is evil? And Paul answers the question at the end of verse nine is, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. So sincere love clings to that which is good. I love this word cling. Paul likens our relationship with what is good to that of actually a husband and a wife. Your husbands and wives are to cleave together. They're to be literally glued together. That there should be nothing that should separate or come in between a husband and a wife. Why? Because they're, they're clung to it. They're glued to it. They're clinging to, excuse me, one another. This is the relationship that we are to have with that which is good. I'm glued to it. There is nothing that can penetrate my relationship with what is good. Now, the obvious question is, well, what do I glue myself to? What is good? Well, you've got the entire Old Testament and New Testament that outlines for us what is good and the good that God desires in us, the good things the characteristics and the attribute, our character, the fruit from our lives. One of my favorite verses that I uh, learned when I was uh, pretty young was Micah 6, 8, and it's actually a song. I'll sing it for you now. Just kidding. Micah 6, 8, he has showed you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Well, act justly, love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. You know what that means is I cling to, I am glued to, I am married to justice. I am married to, I'm clinging to mercy. I am clinging to, I am married to, I am glued to humility. Why? Because I'm married to, I'm fully committed to, to God and to all things that are good. Now, sincere love, it's going to be seen in what we hate and what we cling to in terms of good, but... Paul shifts a little bit here and says sincere love will also manifest itself in how we relate with one another. Romans 12.10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. So another attribute or manifestation of sincere love is just devotion. Devotion to one another in brotherly love. Now, if you would, Look at the person just sitting to your left. Okay, don't do anything weird or goofy. You might not know what I'm asking you to do next. Now, uh, look to the person to your right. If there is someone to your right, if not, then imagine (laughs) someone there. Now, this will be a stretch, but look to the person behind you. Come on, participate with me, people. Okay, you just saw someone to your left, to your right, and uh, hopefully someone behind you. Are you devoted to that person? 
Are you committed to that person? And your first response, well, I don't know that person, so therefore, no. Well, sincere love would call for us to be devoted to one another. And, and Paul specifically here is talking about those who are children of God, those who are of the family of God. So are you committed to the person in front of you, behind you, to the side of you? And what it means literally to be devoted to one another is that you are committed to that person. So if something goes bad with the person in front of you, behind you, you know what? You don't bail. You don't quit. You don't walk away from that person saying, it's just too difficult. I'm done. I'm committed to working things out when they go bad. Or I'm committed to supporting this person, encouraging this person, blessing this person, building this person up. Or I'm committed to being kind. I am committed, I am devoted to showing my affection for this person. I'm not suggesting physical affection. I'm emotional affection, verbal affection. Do you see the people around you as people that you are absolutely devoted to? If you would be one that has sincere love, well, that's how sincere love shows up. I'm devoted to you. I'm absolutely committed to you. And I think one of the hard questions to answer, and it needs an answer, is do you see this church as a family, as a community to be part of, or do you see it as an event to participate in? If you answer the latter, that Genesis is just an event that you show up to whenever you feel like, well, it's really hard to develop meaningful, devoted relate committed relationships when this is just nothing more than an event that you come to when you need a quick fix. But if this is your family, and this is the language that Scripture uses, that the people of God, the family of God, we are to have such affection for one another that people who are not part of the family of God would look into the family of God and say, I, I want that. Did you ever grow up and, and look at someone else's family and be like, Man, it would be awesome to be part of their family. Because you looked at your family and it was dysfunctional or, I don't know, they didn't get to go to Disney World or something. And it's usually surfacey things that we were looking at other, like they got to do things we didn't get to do. But this is kind of what we're talking about here is that people would look at our devotion, our commitment, our kindness, our affection, the way we love one another and say, I desire to be part of that. Now, the reality is, how do you do that in a community of 100, 120, 150 people? Well, it's, it's pretty challenging, obviously. And so what we've done is to say, yeah, be devoted to one another as our church family, but let's express this, practically speaking, in smaller communities, what we call community groups. I love what Kelly said. It has impacted her walk with God. It has impacted her relationships with people. Why? Well, because she's intentionally planted herself in a community group, a small group of five, six, eight, ten people where they can live out giving commitment to and receiving commitment, of giving affection, receiving affection, giving service, receiving service. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 says this, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, 
You do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you. When Paul uses this language of urge, it's emphatic. I'm begging you, brothers, do so more and more. I would say that by and large, Genesis is doing okay. Are we loving each other with family affection, devoted to, we're getting there. Paul's message, my encouragement is, we can do better. Let us ex- ex- express sincere love for one another in our devotion to one another. Do so more and more. If you think you're doing it, keep doing it, but do it even more. Sincere love honors others first. Now, the verse, if you go back, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, and then it says, honor one another above yourselves. I want to just give you a real practical way of how we can express that you honor someone. Now, when is the last time that you publicly praise somebody? And they didn't, they didn't even have to be standing there. Now, I'm not promoting talking about someone behind their back in a negative sense, but when's the last time you're just standing, man, I've been so encouraged by this person. I've been so encouraged by Kelly Kluett, man, how she's just, she's growing a ton. It's been awesome to see. Do you often publicly praise someone? I think, Jeremy kind of talked about this last week, is we are often, at, often good at deflecting when praise comes our way. Like, oh, no, no, please stop saying such kindness to me. But I wonder if we're good at deflecting praise, but are you good at redirecting praise? When someone encourages or compliments, blesses you with a word of affirmation, and it very well may be true, so be encouraged by that, but how good at you are you at redirecting that praise, that compliment, that encouragement to someone else? To honor someone else is to praise them, to admonish them, to encourage them, to bless them with your words. Now, another way that we honor people is we honor <clears throat> in allowing people to have preference over you. Some translations, actually, when it talks about honor one another above yourself, it just says, allow people's preferences before your own. Meaning, rather than always trying to get your way, you're actually paving a path so that that person's preferences can become a reality. Now, I'm not talking about sinful things. I'm just talking about just general preferences. Do you die on the hill of, I'm going to have it my way. This is going to be done in my time frame, in, in this exact same, or do you say, you know what? I want that person to have their preference in this situation. Another way that, uh, I know one way that for me personally, that I feel honored, and I don't know if you would agree with this, but um, I know I feel honored and just blessed respected, when someone comes to me and says, I'd really, I'd love your counsel on this. This is the situation. What do you think I should do? It's, it's more than just what's your opinion. Did you like the movie or did you not like the movie? It's, hey, this is where I'm at. This is what my relationship looks like, or this is the situation I'm in. What would your advice, what would your counsel be? You know what that communicates when you come to someone and ask for their counsel, for their wisdom, for their advice, is I value you. I respect you. What you say matters to me. And so I want to hear what you have to say. I know my father, 
I believe uh, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your parents, honor your father and your mother. Well, almost 40 years old now, I still believe that I'm called to honor my, my father and honor my mother. And the one way that I can do that from a distance is I know that it just blesses my dad when I call him and say, Dad, this is the deal. What do you think? What's, what's, what's your counsel on this? You've, you've been walking with God longer than I've been alive. Your opinion, your, your counsel, your wisdom, your advice, it matters deeply to me. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Now, another way that uh, sincere love will manifest itself is just in our work ethic. Now, Paul goes on, verse 11, says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Now, sincere love is never lacking in zeal. So how do you become a person who has great zeal? Well, the answer is pretty simple, and I'm not going to take long to explain it, but the Holy Spirit. If you want to be a person who has zeal, passion, enthusiasm in your life, you cannot manifest that on your own. You need that to be the Spirit of God working in you to create that zeal, that passion. So invite the Holy Spirit to have his way in you and through you. And the idea about zeal is literally to be set ablaze. I have a friend who who text messages me about once every 12 months. And he's a friend that goes all the way back to college. And uh, we made a commitment to each other when we were at The Ohio State University. And the commitment was that we were going to continue to burn for Jesus. That's the language we used. And so I actually just got this text pretty recently. And uh, it's a simple text that just says, you still on fire. That's it. I love when I get that text from Chris because I, I, yeah, how about you? And it's so encouraging to know that almost 20 years we've been doing this back and forth. You still on fire. And that's what it means to be zealous is to be set ablaze by the Spirit of God at work in you. Now, I don't think many people would be confused about what it means to be zealous. It's just really a question of, are you zealous for the right things? So do you have zeal or passion, enthusiasm for your thing or for God's thing? Now, sincere love can be clearly seen when we are serving the Lord. That's what Paul says is, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Not out of obligation or duty, but because the Spirit of God within us is realigning our passions for the things of God and not for the things of God of this world. Now, if you're here and you're like, man, I'm just lacking zeal. Well, invite the Holy Spirit to begin to have his way in you. And then you know what you need to do? Start serving. Well, I don't feel like serving. Well, then you're not going to have any zeal. You're not going to have any passion. You're not going to have any enthusiasm. So rather than waiting around until you feel zealous about serving and playing the game rather than watching the game, start serving and watch how the Spirit of God will work in you to create such passion, zeal, to be set ablaze for the work of God, for the ministry of God. If you're lacking zeal, start serving. Now, sincere love will also carry us through, as Paul says, storms, afflictions, trials. He says in verse 12, be joyful in hope, 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Now, I'm going to tie this up here in a second of what does sincere love have to do with joy and hope, patient affliction, faithful in prayer. But what I love about what Paul just simply says in one verse, well, we can be joyful because we know God. And we have hope. Our hope is not rooted in what might happen to us, but in the promises of God, which are absolutely certain. So we are joyful in hope. But it also says be patient in affliction. Patient just means endurance, that we can endure or be patient in affliction or trials because we know that trials is not evidence of God's abandonment in our life. It's actually evidence that God's at work in our life. You know the story of Job. A great verse from the, from the book of Job is 13:15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Though my life is falling apart, I trust in him. My hope is in him. I endure. I have patience, steadfastness, even in the midst of trials. Why? Well, because I can trust in him. And it says we can be faithful in prayer because we know that our prayers do not fall on deaf ears. When we pray, we're praying to a God who's very concerned about you who you are, where you're going, what's becoming of you. So when we pray, we, we know we pray to a God who absolutely loves us deeply. Now, if you were to look at verse 11 and then look at verse 12, it would seem that they are disconnected from how we actually relate to one another. Verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Verse 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. How do those at all connect to how we have relationship with each other? Well, our zeal for God is seen in spirit-filled service, our approach to trials of life, joyful, patient, and prayerful. Those things right there will have a profound impact on the people that you're in relationship with. Let me just ask a simple question. Have you ever been inspired by someone else's zeal? Have you ever looked at someone and how they just had this, this burn, this fire, this passion, whatever you want to call it, and it left you like, wow, I desire that as well. You looked at the way they lived and walked with God, the way they loved people, and you were left inspired. There was a hunger stirred in you. Did you ever watch someone who's gone through an, a trial, an affliction, a storm, and you're like, my goodness, how they walked through that, their character was unchanging even though the storms were intense and you were inspired by how they navigated that. I just want you to know that God will use your zeal, your passion, you being ablaze. God will use your joy and your hope and uh, your uh, going through the storms, um, as Paul said, patient or endurance and your prayers to be a blessing, an encouragement to those that are around you. So please don't see those as disconnected, as it were. See those as, wow, how I, how I work and how I serve and how I walk through storms will actually impact the relationships of people that I've, I'm in with. Now, the converse is pretty obvious. Have you ever been, been around someone who's just lazy? They're completely complacent. They have no heart to serve at all. Life is just about them. Are you at all inspired by that? Do you look and say like, my goodness, I will, I'm so encouraged by their laziness. I will see if I can outdo them. <laughs> Do you look at someone who, have you ever been literally just 
watched someone go through a storm and they came out the other side and they absolutely now had such discontentment in their relationship with God. They walked away from God. Did you ever think to yourself, man, I'm, I'm so thankful that they, they made that decision. I'm so encouraged and inspired. I'm, I think I should walk away from God. It's silly. My point is how you do these things will inspire the relationships with the people that you have. Now, the last one that Paul gives, sincere love is made manifest in generosity. Verse 13, share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I think this is probably one of the most obvious ways to express love towards others, namely God's people, but yet it's often one of the most difficult to follow through on, of being generous, like practically getting your hands in your pockets and pulling out resources that you have been given and giving them to other people. I think why it is specifically difficult to be generous is because we believe we don't have anything to give. And so we give nothing. But I want you to know generosity is not seen in someone who gives out of their abundance. Generosity is seen in someone who gives in such a way that they're actually trusting that God is going to now have to provide for them because of how they've been generous with the resources God gave them. So if you feel like, well, I'm generous because I'm, I'm writing big checks and I'm doing big things, well, my question to you is that out of just your abundance, or are you giving in such a way where, like, God, you're really going to have to provide in this situation because I want to give generously. I'm not saying foolishly, be a good steward, but generously. I think another reason we have a hard time being generous or giving is we wait to give to those who are most in need, and we become the judge, well, they don't, if they would just you know, work a little harder, if they would just do this, or if they, I'm not going to give to them. And we become the judge. But the reality is we never give to anyone because we keep waiting for the most needy person to come along and yet need goes unmet, need goes unmet, need goes unmet. Why? Because we just keep waiting and we keep holding back being generous because we don't think that person is worthy of our generosity. It's got to be not a stingy thing, but an extravagant thing. If you were to ask me, Michael, how would you define God? I'd say he's generous. He is generous to a fault. And I could just, well, because he gave his son. He didn't even withhold his only son from us so that I could know him. So sincere love, it's not stingy. It is absolutely extravagant. And Paul makes clear at the very end, practice hospitality. You know what that means? It means you actually pursue being hospitable. To practice something means that I'm actually pursuing it, I'm chasing it. I'm looking for opportunities to be hospitable to people. I think hospitality in our mindset and our culture is, well, when I hear of an opportunity, then I will decide whether or not I will be hospitable to that person. That's not what Paul says. Paul says, pursue it, practice it. Go sniffing out opportunities in ways that you can be hospitable. Now, specifically in the first century, the way people were hospitable and demonstrated sincere love was through their homes. Now, I wrote this question earlier, and I was like, wow, this is going to be a hard question, but I'll just ask it. Is your home, as you consider how you use your home, and your home could be your home, apartment, your condo, your studio, wherever you live. That's what I'm defining as your home. How open is your home? Like, how open is it 
to be used of God to be a blessing and encouragement to other people. I think what happens more than anything is our homes reflect more prisons where people are not allowed in except the people that are supposed to be there. And our homes are not to be modeled after the prison. Our homes should be open. Now, I think sometimes the logic behind our thinking is, well, my house is too nice and I don't want anyone messing up my stuff. And if I allow someone in here, whether it's to live, to stay with us, to share a meal, they might put this over here and I won't like it. Or our thinking is, it's not that my house is too nice. Well, my house is just not nice enough. I can't open my house to this. What would they think of me? What would they say if they saw that I... If you have a house, if you have a place to live, if you have shelter... If you have a roof over your head, that is a gift from God to you. And we are to use what God has given us to be a blessing to those around you. So it doesn't matter if you live in a 20,000 square foot home or you live in 500 square feet. Practice hospitality 